Hello and welcome back to Talk Evidence, your approximately monthly look at the world of evidence with some of your favourite BMJ editors. Um, I'm Helen McDonald, Clinical Editor on the BMJ and Content Integrity and Publication Ethics Editor on the journals and I'm joined as usual by Joe and by Juan. Do you want to say who you are and say hello? Hi Helen, this is Joe, one of the uh, research editors of the BMJ. Nice to see you. And you, Juan, uh, are you just being shy? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Hi, I'm the editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidences Medicine and researcher here at the Huntington University in Germany. Coming up in this month's episode, we have some bittersweet news from the team. We have a new observational study looking at nemautrovir, ritonavir for outpatients with COVID. And we're going to use that as an opportunity to discuss observational data to emulate trials. We have a short and sweet item on whether back surgery works for patients with sciatica and disc herniation. Um, And we have a bit of a communication binge topic, which is right up my street, a bit of a yin and yang on um, both a new reporting statement on um, harms and communicating the benefits about cancer treatments with patients and the public. So we begin with some very sad news um, about one of our uh, guests, Joe, who has broken the news to Juan and I that he is leaving BMJ. And I think the time has come for him to tell you all. Oh, Helen, come on, you're making me sad. Um, I'm, I'm leaving formally uh, the BMJ. I'll be joining um, the team of editors at JAMA in June. Uh, and it's going to be uh, you know, a very bittersweet departure for me because I've enjoyed both working with you both on talk evidence, but also all my time uh, working at the journal and trying to make it a better resource for clinicians and for patients. So uh, I'm hopefully will be gone, but not forgotten. <laughs> yeah. So people who are like me, very sad that Joe's going as much as I, as I gently um, maybe insult you on this show. <laughs> we felt that we should give you two episodes notice that he's going. So he, he, he will be here for this episode and also for the next one. Well, after that sadness, let's get going with our first item of today, which is on nemautrovir ritonavir and the risk of hospitalisation um, and death amongst adults with COVID-19. And this was an emulation of a randomised target trial using electronic healthcare records. So we're very pleased that Joe hasn't left yet because this is right supposedly up his street. So here is the study in a nutshell, or the rationale that the authors give at least, which is that they um, say that that there was a randomized trial done of nemautrovir. However, it was it was mostly done before Omicron. So this study that they have done um, using real world data is in an Omicron era. So running between the 3rd of January and the 30th of November 2022, which covers um, BA1, BA2 and BA5 in particular. And it also occurred in a landscape where Many more people were vaccinated to some extent or fully, and some people had had COVID before. So, so Joe, is this is this a good and convincing start? Well, you, you know, I think our, our listeners know and readers of the BMJ that you know this concept of the target trial 
has been growing in popularity. And you could, sometimes it gets uh, sort of mixed up with the concept of real-world evidence or you know, using real-world data to provide real-world evidence on medical products and therapies. And all of it grows out of the, I would say, the higher quality data that have been available to researchers, particularly over the past decade, is um, electronic health record systems connect with one another. We have more granularity within those electronic health record systems to understand patients' diseases, severity, indications for use. None of it is intended to replace the randomized controlled trial, which remains the gold standard kind of level of evidence or kind of evidence for a reason, right? It it deals with selection bias and confounding, you know, both for sort of observed and unobserved characteristics that we can come up with. But sometimes, uh, you know, evidence is needed uh, sooner than an RCT can be completed. Or sometimes RCTs don't get done, even though they should be getting done. Uh, and in this case, this was a good example of a team using uh, data across the Veterans Health Fairs uh, Administration network of hospitals within the United States to understand um, essentially the, the effectiveness of Paxlovid uh, in, the, in the Omicron period. And so target trials, essentially what it is, it's, it's, it's they're essentially emulating what a hypothetical randomized control trial would have looked like, right? And to do that, you have to pre-specify a protocol, you know, who would be eligible for treatment, what are the treatment strategies, how would assignment be determined, what's the period of follow-up, right? Because you're trying to get at, like you would with an RCT, you know, what the answer would be. And then you use the observa observa observational data to, to emulate that analysis by controlling for confounding through, often through like inverse probability treatment weighting, you know, coming up with all of the characteristics by which you can quote unquote control to make the population similar. Um, and, you know, we're seeing these more and more often. And, um, you know, I think as a one-off, they're useful. When you do it in multiple data sources, that sort of a constellation of evidence, that's even better, particularly if the results are consistent. And, you know, best case scenario is when you're doing it on top of a trial that's already been done, and perhaps it allows you to look at specific subgroups of interest or for maybe rare, rarer endpoints that weren't collected as part of the trial. And if your primary endpoints align, right, th this is how we can sort of really use these kinds of ad advanced observational data methods to complement clinical trials. So they're saying here the justification is that the population has slightly changed because people were more or less vaccinated or previous infections. And they're also saying the pathogen had changed a bit. So is that enough? Right. Well, to me, that's justification for another trial, right? And that's what I would have liked to have seen these companies putting out these antivirals to run because, you know, we, all the original trials were predominantly done in people who were unvaccinated mm -hmm. and obviously predominantly done when the Delta strains were most common. And so there's a real gap in the evidence. Like, do we need uh, to provide these drugs to people who are uh, vaccinated uh, in the context of Omicron or other variants that are understood to be less severe? Um, and I think that it's it's actually quite mixed. There's, you know, this study and others, they identify, you know, that essentially that patients who are older or with more severe disease are the ones who are most likely to benefit. Um, but it's very 
challenging still to get away from the sort of selection bias of who are the people that go through and pursue getting these medications. Mm. They're usually more advantaged. They're usually wealthier. They're usually more educated, right? Even in the context of a system like the VA uh, to make their way. Like one of the things that I find most challenging in the United States, I don't know if it's the same in Europe and the UK, uh, is that you have to have a documented positive test, right? So who are the people who are having symptoms getting to their doctor, getting a documented positive test, and then going and getting the the uh, prescription, right? Th- that, that's that's hard to do for the poor and so- socially disadvantaged in the United States, at least. Right, Joe, we're going to have to pause you there because we haven't even told them about the paper yet. So they know that they don't want to read it and you think it's terrible now. Actually, that's untrue. You no, no, I was trying to explain why it's terrible. useful. They should have done their study, but in, in the absence, these people have come to our rescue to provide us with something and this is what they provided us. So they have done a real world data study in the US and they included people who were eligible for treatment with nemantravir, which basically meant that they had at least one risk factor for progression to severe COVID illness. And that's pretty broad. So when they say one risk factor, I mean, you almost struggle to imagine a patient who isn't going to have <laughs> some of these exactly, you think about exactly. general clinic because you're thinking about um, anyone that's over 60, anyone that's got a BMI over 25, anyone that's a smoker, lung disease, or a, a single morbidity, not even people with comorbidities like hypertension. So a lot of people are eligible. And their aim was to was to look um, in those populations, um, but with different vaccination rates um, and according to their infection status, whether they'd had it before. So um, they compared people who had used the drug compared to people who had not used the drug. And they look at this composite outcome of admission to hospital or death within 30 days of a positive test result. Um, And they, as Joe alluded to, there's all kinds of fancy methods that happen in there. And we might just want to pause on one aspect of the fancy method that made me confused, me being the lowest bar for methodological knowledge on this podcast, and it made Juan confused. And maybe it's even made Joe confused or made him had to do a bit of Googling, which was something called cloning. So, Joe, tell us, tell us, or, or Juan. I mean, Juan, you can jump in here I and think... redeem yourself. Juan's shake, shaking his head. And I'm like, so for my second to last episode, I'm going to turn everybody off by talking about all these boring uh, methodological things. And then things. they'll but, never want so, to hear from you again. They'll never have to. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, cloning is kind of complicated conceptually even for people like me who kind of do this work and i'll just say that tell us in 30 seconds yeah yeah so and i'm leaning heavily on a great paper i found in the international journal of epidemiology by camille uh, meringue and others where they essentially talk about how in these kinds of observational data analyses the start of follow-up and treat initiate treatment initiation do not always coincide, which creates confounding and a mortal time bias within these analyses. And essentially, this cloning technique who is was proposed by the sort of god of the emulation target trial framework, Miguel Hernan, an amazing investigator, talks about how essentially you create a clone of every individual patient within the data set so that they are observed together dealing with this immortal time bias related issue. And then when somebody is either 
like in this case, vaccinated or given the booster or in, in, in studies of vaccination or given Paxlovid, like in the study that we're talking about, they sort of flip over. And it's complicated mathematically, but it's intended to address these issues. Um, I so think, Joe, you've given I'll, it your I'll, best I'll leave it at that. And, <laughs> and people can go to figure three and see if that helps to demystify it a bit. I don't know, Juan, do you feel any clearer after, after Joe's little explanation there? Well, um, I mean, two minds about this. I mean, I think that um, it's the work by Arnan is so interesting because he he's the one that this and his team described this mortal time bias problem with this, um, you know, the hormone replacement uh, therapy study that um, that indicated a reduction in cardiovascular event, but then when it was reanalyzed considering uh, treatment initiation then it showed similar results as the trial. So I guess that their, 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 their work on this area and trying to figure out what can go wrong in, when analyzing an observational study is very valuable. But perhaps to put it, it in simpler ways is when you're trying to match people in, in observational studies to, to try to reduce the, the confounding, it's just... A, I tried to think of myself, and perhaps I, I need to read the paper that Joe suggested, but as a more advanced way of matching people and considering more variables than we usually do. Because usually when you have studies, you say, well, we match by age, sex, uh, um, the uh, comorbidities and, uh, or the medications they take or, um, or deprivation index or, um, and so on. So I think that considering these other aspects makes the cloning uh, thing um, well, Juan, actually, more I advanced. Think, I think you might have done a better job than Joe. So you've summed it up as more advanced than matching. So I think let for my simple brain, I'm going with that. And now I'm going to cut us <laughs> to the main findings, which may be what our clinical listeners out there would like to know. So very crudely in this cloning trial simulation, observational paper, whatever we're, we're defining. It's not it a as. simulation, it's an emulation. Got to get it right. Emulation. Um, <laughs> the very crude level risk reduction here was about a 1% reduction um, associated um, with the use of the drug for admission to hospital and death. Yeah, no, I think that, just to say, Helen, I think that 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 is the key takeaway. The, the relative risk reduction looks great. It's like 30 to 40% lower rates of this. But when you focus on that absolute percentage point risk difference, it's actually quite small. It's like a one percentage point difference. And that so, compares to the trials, um, this this EPIC HR trial that they referred to as the, the former trial for this drug. So in this study, they found a 1% absolute risk reduction, whereas in the original trial that looked at this in the pre-Omicron, less vaccinated era, that came out as an absolute risk reduction in, in the actual randomized control trials of more like in the region of 5%. Yeah. So we're looking like, for whatever reason, whether the change in study design, whether the Omicron variant, whether it's some other factor to do with populations now, this drug is the, the authors do think that this small difference is still worthwhile um, considering prescribing this drug, but it is nonetheless less markedly helpful um, than the trial suggested that it might be. 
Right. And, and, and that bears out in the figure where you see much larger absolute risk differences in the unvaccinated population compared to like those who've gotten a booster. Right. Or, and so, um, yeah, I mean, this is this is why I think, you know, particularly around this time, it would have been very useful to run a trial. Many people were still getting infected. Many people were still concerned about what to do next. There's still a lot of clinical equipoise about the right treatment strategies. But even you know the manufacturers of the of the drug, they 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 stopped enrollment in their trial that was sort of ongoing because the the absolute risk was so low. They weren't they they thought they were going to have to enroll you know so many hundreds to or thousands of people that you know to be able to actually determine whether there was a benefit. Right, we'll make it. Yeah. Oh no, go on, Juan. Did you have something else to say? No, just a little for context. We only have two for because I checked the living systematic review on, um, on on this drug for for Cochrane, and the latest update is for March this year, and they've identified two published study. One that is the Epic trial that we already mentioned, and the other one is a trial with a large population of unvaccinated, seventy percent unvaccinated, so it's still very uncertain, and they had identified seventeen ongoing studies, but. As Joe mentioned, many of these studies would be term- terminated uh, as well. So it's um, unclear whether all these ongoing studies will provide any more evidence than what we have so far. Well, I think we need to get on to our next item now. That was that was a bit of a marathon. Um, we're going to move on to sciatica, which I'm, I'm going to promise is going to be faster in this systematic review and meta-analysis on um, people with sciatica and whether or not surgery is a good thing. So I pick this because sciatica is common. Um, the authors say it has a lifetime prevalence of up to 43%, which seems really astonishingly high. And in the vast majority of cases, they say it's caused by a herniated disc, um, causing lumbar nerve root compression and inflammation. And most of the time it gets better, but in around a quarter of patients, um, there's still pain after around a year. And the question is then what to do. And guidelines recommend a a stepwise approach here uh, for sciatica, starting with non-surgical treatments such as exercise, building up through pharmacological interventions, and then perhaps surgery as a last resort if the radiological findings are consistent with the symptoms that the patient is experiencing. So the research question here was to investigate the effectiveness and safety of surgery compared with non-surgical interventions in people with um, sciatica of any duration, but um, had confirmed radiological imaging with lumbar disc herniation. And they were looking at um, evidence from randomized controlled trials, comparing surgical treatments with those other options, which might have included epidural steroid injections or placebo or sham surgery and looking at outcomes such as leg pain and disability as the main outcomes, um, adverse events and back pain, quality of life and satisfaction with treatment were secondary outcomes. And to me, this kind of all stopped when you come to the results section and they have found lots of um, very low to low certainty evidence um, and, and then spend a lot of time just discussing what that might mean. And there's also an editorial discussing what that might mean. And Juan, I wanted to come to you on this one because I just wondered if it really meant very much at all and really what we can conclude um, about this other than that we don't really know that it works. 
Um, so I would um, point out to your listeners if they want to look at the more the main results in Figure Two because it, they're 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 separated by time points: immediate term, short term, medium term, and long term. And it's very um, it, it's very good because uh, the BMJ has been consistently doing this. That for pain, they're trying to report the absolute reductions in of pain in the vast core from zero to 100 so you can have a good idea of whether it's a little it's a something or it's a large uh, reduction so um if you look at the in immediate terms it's uh, a couple uh, six studies and the confidence interval goes from minus uh, 23 to m minus 0.5 so uh When, when an average mid difference of 12 points uh, reduction, which is, if you take a, a, a rule of thumb, if you, you're saying the 10% out of a 1 to 100, 12, it could be a moderate perhaps or some small reduction in, in pain. And 23 is quite considerable, but if you take 0.5 it's from the other end of the confidence interval, it's, it's just marginal and probably not clinically relevant. So there's a signal here, the immediate term, that there could be a substantial reduction, but there's a great uncertainty if you look at the confidence interval. And the authors also highlight that there's problems with risk of bias. So you have uncertainties on the immediate term. But if you go to the short and medium term and long term, it gets uh, even more, uh, it's even gets even smaller, the, the effect size, 11 points, 6 points, 2 points. So um, you're, you're perhaps, we can even be on the other side and say, well, perhaps we're being a little bit more certain that, 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 that there's perhaps not such a big effect on it. Of course, there are other things to consider, such as risk of bias. But but the, the 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 one the one phrase summary of all of this is perhaps there's some reduction at, at the immediate term after surgery, but the rest should, we should be very cautious. And how to interpret that? Well, I think it depends a lot on on the context. And I think that there's there's a linked editorial that I suggest reading with a, a patient um, uh, co-author uh, that try to put a little bit of context on how these results may look to, uh, by someone who perhaps ex is experiencing pain. And as you mentioned before, that surgery is in the path. It's not the first decision when you're trying to take care of a patient with sciatica and you're trying to run out of non-surgical non options first. So in this case, they, they said, okay, if we have immediate immediate term uh, results that are promising, should the surgery be early? And if I put my research hat or my clinical hat, I would say, oh, well, but the results are very uncertain. I, I wouldn't push the surgery for, um, um, earlier. But um, you, for, if you take it from the per, per, per perspective of the patient who's in a lot of pain and they can, um, in that context, they might take this uncertainty and say, okay, but I want to try it anyways. Uh, um, it's, it's something that it's... I, I don't know. I just think that it's something that you, you should really take in context. As everything with evidence-based medicine, you need to take the patient's perspective always. Yeah. Juan, I'm really glad you referred to that editorial, which I thought was excellent. And I think one of the other key points that they make when summarizing these trials, and I agree with all of the sort of cautionary sort of uh, issues that you pointed out, is that most of the trials were done in you know, specialized or secondary care populations, right? So these are not people who have sciatica in primary care. These are people who've sort of failed 
primary care and and then ended up in secondary care more likely than you know so uh, to have more advanced disease more severe disease you know a large proportion of patients in primary care with sciatica improve over two to three months we know that with conservative measures so I, I would not uh, I, I thought the editorialist did a great job of sort of putting that into context and sort of why you don't want to s- rush to surgery even though you know, this review, with all of its uncertainty, suggests that maybe there is a potential early benefit that that fades over time. Well, I think those were very useful comments from you both on that. We all finished in a very tranquil and harmonious space. Um, I guess it did feel a little bit sad, but that's the best evidence that we can offer people with such a common condition. It felt a bit sad to me. I agree. We need We need better trials on some of these issues. Way better trials. Better interventions, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. As you're listening to Talk Evidence, we figure you're interested in discussions about research, and you might even want to add your voice. The BMJ is relaunching the Known Unknowns webinar series. Started during COVID, we're now expanding to discuss many of the other uncertainties in medicine. The first of this new series will happen on the 25th of May at 5pm London time and we'll be asking why, if 50% of the population experience the symptoms of menopause, the evidence for hormonal therapies is still so debated, and what research has been done into alternatives for symptom management. So that's on the 25th of May at 5pm London time. Visit bmj.com slash known hyphen unknowns to register for free and join the conversation. The next thing we're going to discuss is harms and reporting statements. So as Joe mentioned earlier in the podcast, and I'm sure that almost all of you know, randomized control trials remain the reference standard for healthcare research when we want to know about the effects of interventions. And I think it goes without saying that we need to both understand what the benefits of those treatments might be and also what the harms are. Um, and over the last decade or so, in fact, longer than that, I think, how, how long is uh, Consort and Equator in these reportments, reporting statements going? This is like a little quiz question for EBM nerds, Joe and Juan, who's going to jump in and say when the first one ever was? I'd have to guess at least 30 years. Okay. Right? They probably started in the 90s. I don't know. What do you think? For when, some yeah. considerable decades then, reporting <laughs> statements have been um, seen as a important way forward of trying to better communicate and standardize the way that research findings are shared. And CONSORT, which is the reporting guideline which um, assists researchers to communicate their findings from their trials has got to be one of the oldest ones, I think. And even so, it only has one item which touches on the topic of harms technically. Um, and these authors who've been who've been working on a revised version of this extension of consort for harms um, reflect that harms reporting is still not as it could be. So they did a meta-epidemiological overview to look for studies that identified um, and reported on harms. And they reviewed those reviews of those studies, which looked at around 500 trials um, and the items that the consort harms checklist, which was done in 2004, suggested. And they looked 
And they found that the items varied from covering about nine to 69 percent of the items that they had discussed. Um, so there's still some way to go. Um, and the authors say that, it, you know, it hasn't been consistently applied, the con consort harm statement, and it also needs to be updated. Um, so they went through a modified Delphi process, which was two online surveys and an in-person consensus statement. And they've come up with this suggestion of 13 items which can go, in their opinion, into the main consort guideline and three new items. Um, so I thought we should touch on this. It did make me want to sigh a little bit because reading reporting statements isn't necessarily the most thrilling literature to read, but this is an incredibly important topic. And I, I just kind of felt baffled that still the harms are not incorporated into the main consort reporting statement. Um, but Joe and Juan, with your researcher hats on, I've never actually had to write up one of these things. What uh, what did you make of this new information emerging? Is it useful, helpful? Well, I think that um, yeah, you as I share your your concern both as a, as an author and as an editor to try to check all the simultaneous reporting guidelines is a little bit of a nightmare. But um, and I think we should say for listeners who don't look at these things very often, they are they run into the twenties, don't they? I mean, the list of things that you're meant to be reporting and checking are reported. It's quite an <laughs> arduous piece of work to go through and and check on these things. Not just that they're there, but also that they're well communicated. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, but I do think that this is a, a major, um, major um, issue in in in, in trials. Um, if you if we talk about, for example, the the previous systematic review uh, that we just mentioned about uh, sciatica. I'm, I, I imagine the author is trying to synthesize the harms because they, ha they do have a separate uh, part, section where they talk about the harms of the surgery. And if you look at the, the, the surgical trials, for example, they, they, the, the way they report the, the surgical adverse events is so um, um, inconsistent and uh, incomplete and all the ins that you can imagine. And it's very frustrating to gather all that information and try to make your mind as to what's going on. And sometimes the, 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 the trials confuse how many adverse events in general occurred uh, as, as to whether how many patients had uh, adverse events. So in general, when you're trying to talk, when you're talking with the patient, the patient doesn't ask how many adverse events in general happened at the trial. The patient is interested in, know, in knowing how, what is the likelihood that I will suffer an adverse event. And, and that is sometimes very inconsistently reported in the, in the, in the trial. So um, I, in, in, and I found that that guidance, which is in the sections, um, uh, on the results sections, I think 17A, all of this uh, detailed uh, ex ex uh, extracts from the uh, Prisma harms are very useful. But I think that the challenge, as I've mentioned before, is how is, is this going to be implemented and how is this going to advance science? Because if if an author needs to shuffle with a lot of papers trying to figure out which reporting guidelines is not um, is, is is on the line here that they're going to have trouble. I do know that there are some initiatives in producing sort of interactive uh, reporting guidelines, so that um, authors 
know so they can say i'm doing this type of research and they get a single um reporting guidelines uh, that is populated with all the extension and so on um and that would be very very helpful but um the implementation part of it is going to be a challenge yeah I, and i i would obviously agree with that i i do think that you know the the impact that these guidelines and checklists have had on research reporting has been immense you know over these 30 years right i mean we went from having people reporting trials that were you know a mess you couldn't find the information you were looking for to creating a standard by which you would sort of read through and look and know kind of where's the objective statement where are they defining the endpoints right and that doesn't you know mean that we don't have farther to go and they these are a resource to the uh, both the the authors themselves when they're designing the trial and then when they're reporting the trial as well as to the editors and the reviewers of the paper and you know we know that harms are poorly reported in trials right there's been some really good studies demonstrating how uh, how much missing information there often is related to harms within the main particularly the main publications of a trial and how much more information you can find like if you're looking at a regulator's website when they where they're summarizing the sort of safety data so you know, I, I, I'm hopeful, you know, that this can be helpful, but I, I'm kind of interested, you know, after 30 years, kind of where we're going to go next. I love this idea of like the interactive modules, the kind of in, better enabling uh, to support the authors so that they don't feel like they're, you know, reading through uh, the Equator website to, to find out both which main do, which main checklist they should be using and which extension should they be using and sort of all the other the challenges. We, we want to make this easy for authors so that it's easy to implement and for them to use. Yeah, that's right. I think clinically, the other thing which I thought was useful, they had this table in there um, around ambiguity of harms terminology, which I also thought was very useful. And the key message that I took from this, and you can see lots of ways that this might be referred to um, in studies, they talked about anticipated compared to unanticipated events, solicited or unsolicited events, attributed events, unintended events. And I think that concept was very helpful to, is helpful to crystallize in your head, um, distinguishing between those harms which the researchers are actively looking for because there's something about the mechanism or the preliminary work that's happened on this um, drug so far, or this intervention so far, if it's not a drug, that might make you anticipate and look for certain harms versus harms which might just come from nowhere that that maybe were very difficult to anticipate. And I think that was a useful message to to come across and for people to bear in mind when they're sharing that information with patients. Well, in order, I mean, following the, the idea of, of trial transparency in trials, um, there's this um, transparent report on, on the adherence of uh, funding agencies and how trials fall, uh, are best following uh, best practice. Um, it's, have you seen this? It's, um, I like it when you uh, just sneak a little other, little other item in to our agenda. Yeah. Tell us about so, it. So the WHO uh, issued a joint statement that sets out um, 11 safeguards um, to, to improve uh, reporting of trials and r reduce research waste and... Uh, um, they are in four domains. The first domain has to do with registration. There are four items. Um, I'm not going to go through the list. We can perhaps we can link the report in the in the episode. Uh, the second domain is the journal, the, the publication in journals, uh, how making it public, away, etc. Um, 
the the monitoring and compliance has to do with how the funders are following how this process is being uh, put through. And the fourth domain, which I found very, very interesting, has to do with sanctions. Whether you, when you're getting a, when you are applying to a grant, that you, one of the criteria by which you're going to be evaluated is your past history of following best practice. Um, which is, I, I guess it's, uh, I, I think it's the, the chair, the, the icing of the cake, is that this? You can have the icing on the cake. Or well, the okay, cherry yeah. on the icing on the cake. Oh, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> I, I think it's the cherry on the icing of the cake. Okay, go with that. And um, and they, it's it's a very interesting report. Um, they some of some of the and it's divided by region: North America, Europe, UK, um, and 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 you can see all the details. But many of the funders have. Um, uh, very few of these 11 requirements. Some of them do actually very good. For example, the NIH in the US has 10 of the 11. The, uh, the, the UK, the National Institute for Health Research, let the, all the 11th requir- the requirements. Um, but as many other funding agencies do not. And if uh, the, what I found um, uh, interesting is if when you look at what are the most popular of these 11, the two most popular 11 criteria are prospective trial registration, which, um, to be honest, I think has, is a lot of journal dependent because the International Committee of, of Journals says that you we should be publishing only prospectively registered trials. So there's this whole regulatory incentives for authors to prospectively register because they know that at the end what they want to publish, in, there needs to be a prospective register. So it's it is... It is uh, reasonable for this to be very popular, and the second one is open access publication, um, which um, it's sort of funny, you know. I'm, 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 I'm all, I'm, I, I'm, a, I support the idea of open access, but I think that uh, the availability. I would have expected that, considering that these are publicly funded study, the availability of the results would be the most popular one, regardless whether it's an open access publication or not. But this sort of tells you how the system is working with the incentives and so on. Um, so um, ideally, in the future, all the 11th criteria will be top-notch, but uh, I think this is a good report to follow. What did yeah. you learn from reading it, Joe? Well, I mean, so I've been involved in this space uh, for for quite a long time, and it's uh, you know it's nice that Juan sort of noted that it, within the report, you know, NIH came came out on sort of on top uh, in terms of funders. But I'll just note it wasn't always the case. You know, our group published a paper in the BMJ more than ten years ago, finding you know less than half of NIH funded trials had even published their results. You know, more than two years after the trials were completed, not just sort of, you know, once, once they were finished. So, you know, I think it takes a lot of time, takes pressure, takes attention uh, for funders to, you know, re- recognize the problem, institute good policies, and, and actually change the organization. And the other thing that I totally agree with Juan is, you know, the, the trial registries and the journal publication, those kind of best practices, those are system-wide improvements that we're all benefiting from, right? So the ICMJE, you know, helps to, you know, 
require trial registration. That changes the culture. Clinicaltrials.gov and other registries are launched. That enables registration. Journals, you know, offer open access, you know, uh, as an as an option. They, they include trial IDs when they publish a paper. Those are journal like, but this is the system, the culture of research changing. The ideas of sanctions and monitoring compliance that goes back to the funder, right? The funder has to do that. And I think obviously we're going to probably be a long way from any major organization getting to the point of sanctions, but the it, it, the, the monitoring compliance is a major challenge. They have to you know, provide additional uh, efforts and FTE to, to, to do that, to contact investigators when they're out of compliance. Um, and, and this is where the, I think the rubber is going to hit the road over the next five years. Like, how are these individual funders going to really, you know, kind of work with their grantees to make sure that they're following these rules and requirements? Yeah, and I just wanted to get back to one point. I think that the major step is the number 11. I mean, if you go to a library and you get a book and you don't return it for a year and you go back and you want to get another book, the librarian is going to tell you, you can't get another book because you owe us a book, right? So um, there needs to be sort of a carrot and stick situation here. The funder cannot be giving up money for researchers that have, are holding on to data that was publicly funded. So um, I'm hopeful that that will be a good incentive. Our final item for today's episode is cancer drugs and the way that the benefits of um, cancer drugs are shared with patients and the public. Joe, you wanted to tell us about this one. Yeah, and actually, I you know I think this is such a nice paper, and it in some ways re- sort of relates back to the consort harms reporting document, right? Because this entire paper is around sort of how is information about newly approved you know cancer medicines communicated to clinicians and the public, and and what they do is a pretty comprehensive look at every anti-cancer drug that was authorized by the EMA over a three-year period. The EMA being the Europeans Medicines Agency. Exactly, exactly. And what they look at is whether written information on a product address what they would consider working with patients. They're commonly asked questions about who and what the drug is used for, how the drug was studied, the type of drug benefit expected, and the extent of weak, uncertain, or missing evidence for drug benefits. And what they did is they looked at various uh, sources of information. Uh, written, uh, like the, the summary of product characteristics for healthcare professionals, that sort of summary of information, the package leaflets for patients, what are called the EPAR summaries, the, um, the European Public Assessment Reports, um, and other sort of all this related information. And, you know, essentially what they find, um, and I think, you know, first what they find is a lot of um, these anti-cancer medications are approved on the basis of evidence that doesn't address, you know, whether patients live longer or have be- better quality of life. And so there is a lot of uncertainty to convey. Like three quarters of the medications are approved on the basis of what are called surrogate markers of disease, right? And so, like, this is the major challenge. And it's progression-free they- survival, isn't it, Joe? That is the most common surrogate that's used in the in the cancer studies. Progression-free survival, which, of course, is kind of inaptly named because it has nothing to do with survival, but just how long people live without the tumor growing, Mm -hmm. right? That's what's meant by progression-free survival and response rate, which is a sort of similar but doesn't account for time, uh, you know, has the— Shrinking. 
of something. Shrinking or something that the clinician decides upon. But it has nothing to do, and there's been ample evidence to demonstrate that these progression-free survival and response rate are not good correlates of actual survival. Uh, or quality of life. And so they they look through all these documents and what they find essentially are that the sort of brass tacks details about a drug approval, how many trials there were, how many endpoints, you know, you know, who was studied, the eligibility criteria, that's all pretty well communicated um, within these publicly public documents. But the sort of uncertainty of benefit is much less so. Um, and they offer, you know, some really, I thought, interesting examples around how this should be thought of. And, you know, essentially what they call on is for the this regulator, the EMA, but I think this applies to all regulators, is to find better ways to communicate benefit to patients so that they can be in a better position uh, when deciding whether to use a particular therapy. Because these new therapies, uh, particularly in the United States, they're expensive. They often come with the sort of burden of receiving treatment, you know, going to your doctor every week to get chemo for a period of time, the monitoring that happens as part of it, the feeling sick and the, you know, other associated adverse events when you take chemotherapy. So what what I think that's what this is most useful for is like the sort of pamphlet materials is insufficient. So they're essentially calling on the regulator to do to do better, uh, to help patients understand the uncertainty uh, at the time. And that's the key to it, really, that comes across, isn't it? It's not really communicating the benefit as, as such. It's communicating the uncertainty that there is about the benefit, the nature of the benefit, what these surrogate markers mean, what evidence is there, and what are the limitations of it, and what are the huge gaping holes that might exist um, as well, which, which is very challenging to write, isn't it? Not only challenging to write, but also challenging to keep up to date in these fast moving areas where more studies are, are coming out. So it is a very challenging um, task, <laughs> an important one, but a challenging one. Um, Juan, did you have any thoughts on this one? Well, yeah, uh, we, I recently edited, uh, there's an article coming at BMJ, EBM, that uh, talks about plain language summaries. And I was thinking about the this figure uh, that sort of shows the shrinking of the information in, in the levels, right? The regulatory have all the information and the the summary of product characteristics that is available to doctors, perhaps. It has more, a little bit less, but it has pretty, pretty much information. And then you go when you go to the patients, it's dumbed down, very little. What is the drug? And um, I think that it's very patronizing to what 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 a patronizing view of what patients need or want to know about their treatments and um and and it requires um sort of i think that there's a sort of cultural um paradigm i, I it's shifting paradigms your favorite word my now. least favorite uh, word <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Uh, in how we think banned uh, from the editing think. instructions the analysis <laughs> section since I edited that section <laughs> so we need a paradigm shift and acknowledge that patients can be agents of, of knowledge in this situation and they are and they need all this information and uh, and yeah so I'll, I'll try to send you the link to this page so we can look at the episode <laughs> I think also it just demonstrates the importance of communication doesn't it that actually you can have all this science and all this information, but if it isn't effectively shared in a way that can be easily understood, it hasn't been for nothing, but you've missed a trick, haven't you? Yeah, I agree. Right, that's about all we have time for uh, this week. You can subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts from. 
and we'll be back next month with more from the world of evidence. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Take care out there. <laughs>